You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. If you've got your Bible, you can turn to Ephesians chapter 6. That's where we're going to be. Ephesians chapter 6. Well, if you are new with us this morning, my name is Rodney, and I'm one of the pastors here at Stonegate, and it's such an honor and a privilege to have you this morning, and we're just praying and asking the Lord that he would meet with you in some really good and meaningful and deep ways, so we're hoping for that for you this morning, and if you're new, if you'll make sure you grab one of those cards underneath your seat, Um, underneath your seat, there should be a card with the red side and a black side. The red side is if you have a prayer request that we can be praying for you, Uh, you can fill it out on that red side, put it in the offering basket at the end of the service, and we'll grab that, put that on our prayer list, and begin to intercede on your behalf. And the black side, we need everyone to fill out. If you're a first-time guest, if you'll do that, that would be so helpful. It's your information, and we'll send you some things in the mail this week that will make that worth your while. So if you will do that for us, that would be so, so helpful. And so if you would do that, that would be great. Okay, so if you are new or, uh, you know, you've just, you know, maybe been out for a while, but you're back in, we are in the middle of a set of sermons uh, called The Family. And the reason we are doing this set of sermons is because one of our values and distinctives, kind of the flavorings of our church goes like this. We say it this way, that everything begins in the family. And that value or that distinctive is really born out of a belief that our church family is only as strong as, you can just kind of imagine what you might fill in the blank. Our church family is as strong as the individual families who make up our church family. That's how strong our church is. If you want to kind of get a sense of like how we are as a church or how we're doing as a church, you could survey a group of our parents and just by having that conversation with those parents and those families, you could get a sense of our overall strength, you know, as a church. And so everything begins in the family. Our church is only as strong as our family is. So we want to take some specific time to set it aside to think about the family, to think about marriage, to think about what it means to, to have a church family, what it means to operate as a single before the Lord, um, and what it looks like to pass the gospel down to the next generation in our parenting. And that's where we are right now. We're on the second week of thinking about how do we as a church family get the gospel to the next generation. Now with that, we're going to start off by talking to kids this morning to our children in the room. And really, we're all children, aren't we? So this is applicable for us all. Uh, So we're all children, but in particular, I wanna talk to some of our younger kids. So, uh, you know, on any given Sunday, our teenagers, uh, sixth through 12th grader in uh, this room with us, uh, worshiping Jesus, hearing the sermon, doing all that with us together. But this is a unique Sunday because it's the fifth Sunday of the month and it's our family worship Sunday. So our kids ministry, which would be like first through the fifth grade, doesn't meet this morning and all of our kids ministry kiddos are in this building with us, are in this room with us. So with that, I just wanna first say welcome to our kids in the room. We're glad you're here this morning. And, uh, and we're hopeful that the Lord has something good for you this morning. And with that, the reason I want to start off talking to kids is because that's exactly what Paul does in this passage. If you look at Ephesians chapter 6, verse 1, it starts by saying this, children. He is talking to kids. That's all of us generally, but children, it's typically going to be like, you're probably 17 or 18 and down. So in particular to some of our younger kids in the room. So children, obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. Now, in verse 2, Paul is about to quote the fifth commandment. So you got the Ten Commandments. He's about to grab the fifth one and quote it. Honor your father and mother. Then he gives us some commentary. This is the first commandment with the promise. Verse 3 is the promise. That it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Now, if you're a kiddo for a second, I want you to look up at me. Make sure you're looking right at me. 
Think about the the Ten Commandments in two tables. Table number one is commandment one through four, and it's primarily meant to show us what it looks like to love God. So it's vertical love of God. It's it's showing us how do you do that? We aren't gonna have any other gods before God. We're not gonna make any sort of carved image of God. We're not gonna gonna take the Lord's name in vain. It's showing us how do we relate to God and love God? That's commandment one through four, the first table. The second table of the Ten Commandments is commandment five through 10. It's the the second, or the, the last six of the Ten Commandments. And the second table is primarily meant to show us what does it look like to love our neighbor? So first table, one through four, how do we love God? Second table, uh, you know, five through 10, what does it look like horizontally to love people out here in front of us, to love our neighbor? Now, think about what, what God is showing us in these two tables in the fifth commandment in particular. When God is beginning to show us, okay, what does it look like to love our neighbor? How are we gonna do that? He doesn't start way out there somewhere. He doesn't start with how we're interacting with people across the world over there somewhere. He starts right in the home and he looks at kids and says, here's where neighbor love starts. Here's where the horizontal love begins. Here's how we learn how to love the rest of the world and our neighbor. We learn that first by honoring our mom and dad. That's where it starts. In essence, God is saying, by laying out the Ten Commandments like this, he's saying that if you don't learn how to love your parents rightly, you're probably not gonna learn how to love anyone rightly. If we can't figure out the the relationship with our parents, how to honor them appropriately like God would want us to, we're probably gonna like leave a trail of broken relationships kind of throughout the rest of our life. This is part of what God is saying in the way he's laid out the 10 commandments. Um, Augustine, who is one of the the, kind of the preeminent sort of church theologians in, in church history, he just asked a rhetorical question to just show the emphasis of this commandment. He, he said it this way, just the rhetorical question of, if a person fails to honor his parents, is there anyone he will spare? And his answer is just a supplied no to that. If you can't figure out this relationship, you're probably not gonna learn how to honor and respect any sort of authority in our life. So this is obviously a really, really important thing for us to figure out. So that leads to the question of what does it mean to honor our parents? What what, what is that? The word honor in the Bible is oftentimes translated glory. And the word glory in the Bible means weightiness, it's, it's heavy. That's what the word glory means. So if we're just kind of summarizing that, we might say that to honor our parents means that we are treating them as significant or weighty in our life. We're receiving them as gifts from God. We value them. That's part of what it means to honor our mom and dad. The opposite of that would be the, the dishonoring. It means we would treat our mom and dad as trivial and insignificant and not important in our life. That, that would be to, to dishonor them. If you want that in just like a simple sort of concise definition, you could think about honoring your, your mom and dad like this. It's a disposition of the heart that treats your parents with obedience, reverence, and gratefulness. Now, every one of us in the room need to think about that in regards to our parents. It's a disposition of the heart that treats your parents with obedience, reverence, and gratefulness. So it's a disposition. That means the command to honor is not primarily a behavior, although it has behaviors to it, but God is looking behind our behaviors to the posture of our heart toward our parents. Is the posture of our heart right toward our parents? And then you have these three words that give the summary of what it looks like in action. You've got obedience, that we do what our parents say, reverence, that's giving our parents respect and dignity, gratefulness, it's receiving our parents as a gift from God. That's what it looks like in action. Now, obviously, your age changes the way honor plays itself out with our parents. 
So let me just run through this. If you are 18, let's just say if you are on your parents' payroll, Okay, so if you're on your parents' payroll and, well, actually, let me start before that. Let me start with young kids. I've got a nine, seven, and five-year-old in my house. Let me start with them. So if you, if you think about those three words, obedience, reverence, and gratefulness on this continuum, the younger a kid is, the more it's going to lean toward obedience. So I've got a nine, seven, five. When we're talking about what it looks like to honor mom and dad in the house, we say this all the time. It looks like you obey immediately, like you obey right away, so it's an immediate obedience and you do that with joy. We say that around our house all the time. It, what, what sort of obedience do we want? It's right away, first time right away with joy. Our, our kids just kind of have that ingrained in them at this point because we're trying to show them this is what it means to honor us for, as they're a little kiddo. And you see this in Ephesians 6.1 when Paul is clarifying what does honoring look like? He's addressing children and he says, children, obey your parents. So it's leaning over here toward the obedience side. Now, as a kid gets older into their like adolescent years and young adult years, so that's like your teenage years or maybe you're in college, but you're still on the payroll of your parents. Okay, so we're in those sort of years. For those years, it's not gonna lean directly to obedience. It's leaning on all three of those words equally. Yes, we're obeying right away with joy. Yes, we're reverent. And yes, we're grateful. It has all three of those in those teenage, young adult years. Then as we get older, so let's say now you're off the payroll of your parents. Maybe you've gotten married and so you're kind of more independent in your life and you're out from under the direct authority of your parents. If that's you, it is leaning away from obedience and it's leaning over toward, on one side, we're still reverent, we're treating them with dignity and respect, and it's grateful, we're still receiving them as a gift from God. So it's leaning in that side. They no longer have that sort of obedient sort of authority in our life. So depending on the age, it's dependent upon how, you know, what sort of way honoring would play itself out. Now comes the question of why would we want to honor our parents? Why, why would we do that? Paul clarifies why we would wanna do that. He says, this is the first commandment with a promise, that's why. And here's the promise in verse three, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Now, Paul is not saying if you honor your parents, you're gonna be a millionaire by the time you hit 30 and probably live to like 90. That's not what he's saying. But he is saying this, the quantity and quality of your life will be greatly improved if you honor your parents. You're gonna live a richer, more full, a life with more depth if you honor your mom and dad. If you honor your mom and dad, it has a way of attracting the blessing of God and the favor of God in your life. This is what he's saying. And who doesn't want that in the room? Who doesn't want to have like a magnet on the blessing of God in your life? We all do, right? And Paul is just saying, man, when, when you're living in this sort of way where you're honoring your mom and your dad, it has a way of attracting that sort of blessing from the Lord. So that's why we should do it. Now, I wanna switch to parents. So if you're a kiddo, 18 and under, you can just kind of take a step back. You can take a deep breath and you're about to have a whole lot of content that you can now hold your parents accountable for. So we're gonna talk to your parents now. So to parents, let me start by saying this to all of our parents. Parenting matters. It matters greatly. Us as a church family taking responsibility for the next generation and passing the baton of Jesus down to the next generation, it really does matter. If you were here last week, we covered Judges chapter two. And here's what we learned in Judges chapter two. That the only thing one, one generation needs to do for the next generation so the only thing one generation needs to do for the next generation to fall on their faces and worship false gods, the only thing this generation has to do for this generation to do that is nothing. 
When we step out of that, that role and out of that responsibility of making sure Jesus is passed down, if we just do nothing, here's what we know will happen when we do nothing. The next generation will fall on their faces and they're gonna worship false gods. That's what we know from Judges chapter two. In Judges chapter two, we are alerted to this reality that we are always one generation away from all out rebellion against God, from complete spiritual darkness and from the triumph of evil. We're always one generation away from that reality. East of Eden, Judges chapter two shows us, east of Eden, post the fall, that, that we all have dark hearts, that when we are born, we are spring loaded not to run toward God in faith and love and obedience, but to run away from God in fear. We are spring-loaded not to look to God as a faithful God that we can love and trust, but we are spring-loaded to view God with suspicion and with fear and with animosity. We're spring-loaded for that. So every generation, so here's the, the summary of that. So every generation, if that's true, every generation has to be re-evangelized with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Every generation has to have their own fresh encounter with God or here is what we know is gonna happen. It's gonna be all out rebellion, complete darkness and evil is going to triumph. That's what we know. So every generation has to be re-evangelized with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And over and over and over again, the Bible shows us that the primary link between this generation and the next generation the primary link between these, the primary link that is passing along the baton of Jesus, a deep, vibrant love of Jesus, the primary link from generation to generation is the parent-child relationship. If you're a parent in the room, or if you're a person that's gonna say in a lot of Judges 2, I'm gonna take responsibility for the next generation, here is what our role is as parents and as a church. Our role is to stand between our children, the next generation, and the ruin their hearts naturally want. It's to stand between them and that ruin and to say, don't do it. Whatever you do, don't do that. Don't worship false gods. Rather than do that, let me show you this God. Let, let me tell you about Jesus. Why don't you imitate me as I imitate Jesus? Why don't we go do that together? This is what our church family is called to do. This is what every parent is called to do. Now, in light of that, isn't parenting a sobering task? Isn't it a sobering thing to think about what we're doing as parents? See, what's so sobering about parenting is that as a parent, you can't help but make a deep impact on your kids. Even when you try not to, you're actually doing that. You can't help but make a deep impact on your kids. And the reason for that is think about God's design for parenting. What is the purpose of parenting? Here's a short summation of the purpose of parenting. Parents are designed by God to show their children a tangible picture of what it's like to live under the reign and rule of Jesus. That's what you're doing as a parent. You're creating an atmosphere in your home that is supposed to mimic what it looks like for a person to relate to God as your kids relate to you. You're modeling for them how Jesus is gonna treat them. That's what a parent is meant to do. You're always gonna be saying something about what Jesus is doing or what Jesus should be doing. Isn't that sobering to think about? You're modeling that, you're setting the stage for that. See, what's so sobering for me to think about as a parent is that my kids will meet me as their dad long before they're gonna meet God as their dad. 
And how they interact with me and experience me is going to have the deepest shaping influence on how they think about him. Now, parents, we need to come to that reality. And that can, like, we need to see that. Your kids are going to meet you as parent long before they meet God as their good dad and their good parent. And how they experience and interact with you is going to shape in a deep and profound way what they think about God. That is what makes parenting so sobering. And we can't help but say something about this God in the way that we parent. We can't help it. And by God's grace, I'm just praying that we would be a church full of families saying truthful things about God, truthful things about what it means to live under the reign and rule of Jesus, that we would be a church that's saying right things about him. Now, if you're in the room and your heart is like, man, I wanna say right things about him. I wanna create a culture in my home that is doing just that. Well, you're in luck today because Paul is writing Ephesians 6:4 to give you the practical help that we need if we wanna do that. And here's what Paul says in Ephesians 6:4. He says, fathers, you could just supplement the word parent in there. Father or parents, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. I wish we had time to dig into that phrase today. We're not going to. We're going to get this one though. But bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Here's Paul's primary point. Parents, disciple your kids. That's his point. Parents, disciple your kids. If you're a parent in the room, here is how you need to view yourself. You need to think of yourself like this. I am a pastor. That's what you are if you're a parent. If God has given you the responsibility of a kid, then he has given you the mantle of the pastor of your home. Mom and dad, you're the pastors inside of your home. This is what you're doing. God has called you to disciple your kids. And, and you see that in this word in Ephesians 6, 4, bring them up. That same word is used, the Greek word there is used in Ephesians chapter five when Paul is talking to husbands. And in Ephesians five, he says, husbands, here's what you need to do. You need to nourish your wives. Just like Jesus has nourished you, you nourish your wife. That's the same word bringing up that's used in Ephesians 6, 4. Now in Ephesians five, Paul is saying, men, husbands, you need to be a, a husband that loves your wife in such a way where she grows in godliness and beauty. Your love for her should be producing that. It should be beautifying your wife. In the same way in Ephesians 6, 4, uh, Paul is saying, now parents, mom and dad in the family, you should be loving your kids in a way that is beautifying them, that is making them more like Jesus. That is your role as a parent. Parent, you're a pastor. You're called to disciple your kids. You're called to love them and bring them up in a way that they are growing in godliness. See, when you think about um, the primary verse in the Bible about parenting, it's really not Ephesians 6. It's really not Deuteronomy 6, both of which we're gonna uh, talk about today. It's really Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 20, where Jesus says, here's your job as a Christian. Go and make disciples. That's your job. Baptize them and teach them everything that I've commanded them. That's your job. If you lose your way as a parent, you need to think Matthew 28, 19 through 20. That is your North Star as a parent. When you are lost at sea, that is the North Star that you can look at to regain your kind of you know, sense of direction and start heading in the right direction again. Parents are called to disciple their kids as pastors. You're called to be disciple makers in the context of your home. Now with that, the question becomes, how do we do that? 
And Paul gives us two main ways in Ephesians 6, verse 4. Here is way number one. How are we going to bring them up? How are we going to disciple them? How are we going to love them into magnificence? How are we going to love them into beauty and godliness? He says, here's one way. Here's how you bring them up. You bring them up through discipline. Through discipline. Now, can you imagine if a baby came out full grown? I can't imagine that for multiple reasons. But here's, here's one reason. If a kid came out full grown, they would be a monster. Because a, a, a little baby, boy or girl, when they come out of the womb, they have an inability to think about anyone's needs above their own. We come out of the, the womb dark hearted like that. We, we cannot think about the needs of others above ourselves. So when a baby starts crying at 3 a.m. because he's hungry or she's hungry, it doesn't matter if you're sleeping. It doesn't matter what you're doing. That baby is gonna cry till somebody gets up and helps him, right? It's just the, the, the way a baby is wired. They're, they're, they're wired to be bent in on themselves. Now, parents, we need to come to this kind of conclusion about all of our kids, all of our kids. The most dangerous thing about your kid is not around them. The most dangerous thing is in them. It's a deep, innate selfishness that cannot see past their own lives to, to other people. Now, parents, hear me on this. Kids don't just grow out of that. That's not the way it works. Kids don't just magically wake up at, at 12 and like, oh my gosh, I'm no longer selfish. This is amazing. That is not the way, that is not the way this works. One way parents stand between their children and the ruin their dark hearts want is by discipline, by correcting your kids. And when we fail to correct our kids or when we won't correct our kids, we are saying, hey, why don't you just go get everything your dark heart wants? Why don't you go taste the ruin that it wants? But one of the ways we stand in between them and that ruin is by saying, no, don't do that, do this. And when we teach them to not do that and do this, ultimately we are showing them one day and, and giving them a framework to say to God, when God corrects them, I'm not gonna do that, God, I'm gonna do this. This is why, this is why discipline is such a good thing and an important thing in a family context with your kids. Here's the reason. It's because learning to follow parents is the way children learn to follow God. And if your kids don't learn to follow you, they're not learning to follow God. Are you seeing that? Like when we teach our kids to immediately, like not after a count of three, that's ingraining in your kids delayed obedience, right? When we teach our kids to immediately and joyfully follow our instruction, one day that's going to be transferred over to God so that they will immediately, and we don't want our kids following God after a count of three, do we? We want like, God says something and immediately and joyfully they begin to follow God. This is why discipline in the home is so important. It is the groundwork for your kid to learn what it looks like to yield to God and to submit themselves to God. Now, this is not a, a sermon on discipline. I wish we had time to go there, but we just don't have time to talk about all the nuances of that. But I'm just gonna say this. I'm gonna leave it at this this morning. You need to do thinking about that and the sooner the better. Because every moment you neglect that, you are doing a disservice to your kids. Think about that. Get a strategy and a game plan. Fell forward as you're doing that. Now, I, I wanna just make one more comment on the, the 
issue of discipline. Several years ago, we brought in Paul Tripp to do a parenting conference. And he said one thing, just kind of as an off-the-cuff comment in, in that parenting conference that always stuck with me. He said, as a parent, you need to see disobedience in your kid like this. And here was the like this. Every moment of disobedience in the life of your kid is an opportunity for you to parent your kid. Now, can I just tell you as a parent what, what disobedience in my kids seldom feels like? An opportunity to parent my kid. It feels much less like an opportunity virtually every time they disobey, much less like that. And it feels much more like an inconvenience. When they disobey, the way I innately feel so often is, I just want you to start obeying so I can get about with my life. That's what I feel most often. Now, what is that showing about us as a parent? It is showing that that the number one obstacle between us and godly parenting is not our kid, it's our own sinful heart. That's what it's showing. Every time your kid disobeys, it is giving you the opportunity to parent your child. That's what it's giving you the, the chance to do, the opportunity to do. God is saying, hey, can I set it up for you on a silver platter? This is like a moment where you actually get to parent. And I just feel so often in those moments that, that I like the idea of parenting until my kids actually need to be parented, that I don't like parenting, right? But it's like God is showing us every moment of disobedience is God saying, here's another opportunity to show your kid me to show their kid themselves, to show your kid what the gospel of Jesus Christ looks like. This is your opportunity to parent them. Now, in, in moments of discipline, Paul Tripp went through five questions. I just wanna run through really briefly with you that every moment of discipline needs to have framed around it. Now, now, hear me, parents. Every time you discipline your kid, you don't set them down and say, here's question one, question two. That's, that's gonna go really badly, right? But as a parent, you need to develop this framework around every moment of discipline so you can begin to show your kids what is happening with God, what's happening in life in this moment, what's happening in their own heart in this moment. You need to develop this framework to parent well in moments of discipline. Here are the five questions that he went through. In, in moments of discipline, these five questions. Number one, what happened? That is collecting information about what, the event that just went down. Number two, what were you thinking and feeling? That is helping you get a sense of your kid's heart. What is going on inside of them in that moment? Question number three, what did you do in response? That's behavior. You're dealing with, with the action that happened. What, what just played out? What just happened in this moment? Number four, why did you do it? Now there's your question right there. Why did you do it? That's a question we so seldom ask about ourselves, to our folly and shame. And as a parent, it's a question you need to get in the habit of asking to your kids. In a moment of correction, why did you do that? Now, here is why that's such an important question. That is digging directly into motives and desires. You are unpacking what is going on in the deepest places of their heart that is causing this this crazy behavior. And that is where change and transformation, the gospel of Jesus Christ has to get down into those things. So why, why did you do it? Question number five, what was the result of that? What was the harvest What was the consequences of this? Part of what you're doing in moments of discipline is you're attaching. When you act foolishly, it hurts. When you act wisely, it leads to blessing. 
Part of what you're doing is helping, helping translate that for your kid and helping your kids see those things. Now, if you think about parenting like this, every moment of disobedience is an opportunity to parent. You, you think in terms of discipline in these sort of ways. Isn't parenting such an opportunity to help your kids translate and interpret what is happening in their life? It is such a blessing to your kids when a parent thinks like this about discipline. When a parent sees the opportunity that discipline is like this. So one of the ways we bring our kids up is through discipline. Here's the next way we bring our kids up. We bring them up through instruction. Through instruction. Okay, now think about the differences between discipline and instruction. Discipline is mainly reactive. Your kid does something you don't like and you correct them. It's, it's reactive. It's responding to them. Instruction is proactive. You're, on, you're in front of the curve. You're, you're seeding in good. You're not responding to bad. You're seeding in good into their life and heart. Maybe you could think about instruction like this. Instruction is proactively passing along a vision of God and a mission for life. It's proactively passing along a vision of God, like who God is, a love of God, and a reason for their life, like the purpose of their life. This is what instruction is meant to do. Think about the purpose of the family really briefly here. What, what is a family for? What, what did God design a family for? The family is God's basic sort of educational unit. A family is a, the way a kid grows up knowing about God, theology, a way, God, uh, you know, a, way a, a kid learns about people, what it means to love his neighbor. This is what a family is for. It's the basic educational unit. You're getting a chance to equip and show your kids these massive things about life. Now, the Bible gives us some insight into what that could look like. Deuteronomy 6 is that place where it gives us some insight. So if you want to turn back to Deuteronomy 6, I just want to roll through that really briefly with you. Deuteronomy chapter 6. What does it look like to be proactive in our instruction of our kiddos? Deuteronomy 6. Verse four says this, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You, verse five, he's talking to parents. You, parents, shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your might. And verse six, and these words that I command you today shall be on your parent, your heart. Now, I, I love this passage because it is showing us the root of parenting. At the end of the day, parents are meant by God to pass along a vibrant, rich, deep love of God, right? This is what a parent is meant to do. But this passage is showing us that you cannot pass along what you don't possess. If you don't possess a deep, vibrant love of God, you can't pass that on to the next generation. So before we can do anything else as a parent, we need to deal with this question. Is there a deep, vibrant love of God in us? Parent, listen, just ask yourself the question. Is there a deep, vibrant, robust love of God in me? And if your answer is no to that, here is the way we get our parenting back on track. We own that before the Lord. We repent of that and we beg the Lord to give it to us. We beg him, like starting right now, God, would you do that in me? What would you put in me? A deep, rich, vibrant love of God. Then you get to verse seven of Deuteronomy six. We get that deep, vibrant love of God. Then verse seven hits. And you shall teach them diligently to your children. 
In other words, you shall pass that deep, vibrant love of God along to your kids. What you possess, you, you pass along. And remember Judges chapter two, the only thing one generation has to do for the next generation, for that next generation to fall on their faces, worshiping false gods is nothing. When we do nothing, we don't have to wonder what's gonna happen to the next generation. Judges 2 shows us that. They're gonna be bell worshipers. They're gonna take the false gods of the day and they're gonna run after them. That's what's gonna happen if we don't do something. And listen, this isn't just a responsibility. This is a privilege. It's a privilege for God to be able to do that for your kids. One of my friends, he's a pastor down in Houston. He, he says it this way. He's asked me this question before. He looked at me and asked this question. Take away all other input into your kid's life. What would your kids know about Jesus and the reason they exist? Now, parents, I want you to think about that for a minute. Take away like church influence and what they hear like in places like that. Just your influence in your home. Would they know everything they need to know about Jesus, about the purpose of their life? Would they know everything they need to know about that? If not, this is your day to make that sort of like a next step commitment of like, all right, I'm gonna engage in this. I'm gonna do this. I'm gonna be diligent in teaching these things to my kids. Now the question becomes, how do we do that? How do we do that? And let me just give you three quick ways on how we go about teaching our kids. Three ways. Number one, we do that through formal instruction. Formal instruction. That is intentional times set aside in your family to think about God, to talk about Jesus, to talk about the gospel of Jesus Christ, to talk about money, to talk about temptation, to talk about sexuality, to talk about conflict, to talk about suffering and everything else that befalls us in our life with God. It's intentional times set aside to talk about those things with your kids. Now I'm gonna take just a, a couple of seconds here and make the case for family devotions. I'm, I'm gonna look at you today and say, please do family devotions in your family where you are intentionally setting aside time to talk about these things with your family. Do you know who's gonna do that if, you're, if you don't? Like if, if you as a mom and dad say, you know what, we're just not gonna do that. Do you know who will gladly step into that role for you? Our culture. And they will do a wonderful job discipling your kids in everything they don't need to know or, or feel and think. They'll do a great job in that if you don't. But parents, this is like your role to step into that. And one of the ways that that happens is through family devotions. Listen to uh, one guy who did a ton of research. He's a part of the Search Institute. They did a massive research uh, kind of study throughout Protestant congregations and listen to what they concluded. This is gonna be on the screen for you. He said, the particular family experiences most tied to greater maturity in their kids were the frequency with which an adolescent talked with his mom or dad about faith. That's the informal side. We're gonna to get to that in a second. Here's the second part though. The frequency of family devotions. That's the sort of, you know, formal instruction moments. And the frequency with which parents and children together were involved in efforts, formal and informal, to help others. Now I wanna just focus on that middle one for a second. Family devotions are that important. They are that crucial to you getting the baton passed from this generation to the next generation. Um, one guy who, who wrote a book on parenting that I'm gonna recommend to you at the end of uh, uh, our day today, he said this about it. He said, there is something about family devotions that seem to wrap a number of spiritual dynamics in one package. When you do family devotions, here's what's happening. A man is reminded of his appointment as pastor of, the, of his family. 
The children are reminded of their authority under uh, reminded of their authority under dad and mom. Everyone is reminded of the centrality, authority, and necessity of the word of God. It's that important. It's like it, it wraps together so many important things that your family needs to be reminded of every day, right? Now, here is what I would assume for most of us in the room. We probably hear the idea of family devotions and think, you know what, That's, we probably should do that. That probably is a good idea. I could see how that would be helpful. But here's what research shows. That 90% of Christian parents do not do family devotions, even at a minimal of one time a week. 90% of Christians, they just don't do them. Just not a part of the family thing. And I'm looking at you, begging you to say, please make that a consistent part of your daily rhythm and routine. Do that. Be a part of that. Now, I wish I had time just to talk about like the nuances of like when your kids are younger versus when they're older, because obviously it's gonna play out different. But here would be a great thing to work out in your home group this week. What should that look like in light of the ages of our kids? What would be some ideas for that? Maybe you could get the New City Catechism and use that. Maybe get the Jesus Storybook Bible. Maybe you're just gonna use the Bible because your kids are older. Maybe it's gonna be a book you're gonna go through. But man, get a plan for, start failing forward in your family devotions. Formal instruction is one of the ways we proactively instruct our kids. Here's the next way. We proactively instruct our kids through informal instruction. Deuteronomy 6 has a lot to say about both formal and informal. The formal part is verse seven. You shall teach them diligently to your children. And then it goes on to show you a bunch of informal ways. And you shall talk of them when you sit in your house. Just informally, you're sitting down. It kind of sounds like dinner. And you're gonna talk about Jesus at dinner. Now, I don't know what that's gonna look like for you. Here's what it looks like for us and our family. We uh, sit down and we pray before every dinner and we pray four attributes because of God because our kids are really young. So we pray uh, these four attributes. God, you are big. God, you are strong. God, you are good. And God, you're love. We pray those every time together. Then Laura hangs all, everyone who sends us a, a Christmas card. If you wanna send us a Christmas card next year, this, you'll be on our little wall. She hangs them all up on our kind of a window in our kitchen on these two little strings and we pick a family to pray for them. So we do that. And then we try, we just start to mind the heart of our kid. We ask them questions about their day, what happened in their day. And we're just trying to find any way we can, can kind of find to get into their heart and to connect the good news of Jesus into their heart. So that's our kind of dinner time. And he says, think about that. When you sit down for dinner, think about how would you use that in an informal way to teach your kids about Jesus. Then he keeps going. So it's when you sit in your house. Then he says, and when you walk by the way, this is just as you're going, sort of parenting. Now, pull back one step from informal parenting and think about this for a second. God has wired the world in such a way where you can see God in a billion different ways in his creation. There's not one part of God's creation that you can't see God in it. Now, just extrapolate the conclusion out for that. In light of that, it is not weird for a parent to talk about God to his kids it's weird when we don't talk about God to our kid. Like when your kids come out of the womb, they don't naturally see God everywhere. They, they don't see God in creation in a billion different ways. But as a parent, you get a chance to show them how God is in creation in a billion different ways. Through all the little informal moments that you're just living with them and connecting the good news of Jesus into that moment. And I'll just tell you one way that we did that here recently. I was taking Caleb and Hannah home from church and in the, the, there used to be a lot at the front of our neighborhood that didn't have a house on it. And there was like a flock of birds right there in the, on the lot. I slammed on the brakes in the front of our neighborhood just kind of get their attention, make it memorable. 
And I looked out in the lot. And I said, man, do y'all see those birds out there? They're everywhere. I mean, just, oh, the lot was covered with them. And I said, in Matthew 6, Jesus tells us this, that yes, God loves birds. He's all about birds. He loves those birds. And he provides for those birds. But then in Matthew 6, God wants us, every time we think about a bird, to be reminded of this. But he cares about you a lot more. Just like he's going to feed those birds, how, how much more than would he feed you as his sons and daughters? How much more would he care for you as his sons and daughters? It's just an informal moment. Life is happening and you're just connecting God into the moment. In every moment that you can do that, it's just as you're going, trying to help your kids see the world and see God in it. It's, it's as you go. And then it goes on to say, and when you, uh, when you lie down, that kind of sounds like bedtime to me. When I think about the heart of a kid, I oftentimes think about their heart like a flower and the flower is oftentimes closed where you can't see into it. But there's these little moments when the flower begins to open up and you can see into the heart of your kid. They, those are sacred moments, sacred moments. And I, the, the longer I am parenting, the more I think the, the most opportune time for that flower of your kid's heart to come open is bedtime that 10 to 15 minutes right around when they go to bed. Parents, I think you should think a lot about how you interact with those 10 or 15 minutes, how you can leverage that. Um, about a month ago, Laura, she does so great at this. She's so good at this. Every night she just is killing this thing. And she went to put Caleb down and she just laid beside Caleb and was talking to Caleb. And man, here comes his heart. It just opens up. He looks at Laura and says, mom, what did it feel like when Jesus saved you? And I'm so grateful. I mean, it just makes me cry to think about it. I'm so grateful. Laura, uh, she came out, she ran out of this room. It's like, Rodney, you gotta get in here and get in on this. So I jumped in and we just both just laid down beside Caleb. And then I just unpacked what it felt like for me when Jesus rescued me. Laura unpacked, what does it feel like for her when Jesus you know, rescued her? And finally we looked at Caleb and said, Caleb, are you ready to trust Jesus? Now, now mind, every other time we've ever asked him that, it's been, nope, not today. Not, no, not today. And then in his little bed a month ago, he looked at it and said, you know what I am? I'm in on that. And I'm just saying, man, take advantage of that little moment. That, that, that little nighttime moment is just an opportunity for you to see inside that little bloom of your kid's heart that normally is closed up. Think about how to leverage those moments. They're just sacred moments happening there. And then he goes on, he says, and when you rise up, sounds like in the morning. And, and his point here is just to say, saturate every moment. Saturate every moment you can with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Connect Jesus into every crack and every crevice of your kid's heart. Every moment, be thinking about how can you help them see God in everything. And here's the reason why gospel saturation is so important. Parents want it to be the opposite. We want our kids to take Jesus in big bites so that we can just kind of be lazy and just hit it in the big moments. But that's not the way kids take in Jesus. They take in Jesus in very small bite-sized chunks. Um, J.C. Ryle used to say that kids are like a narrow-necked vessel. You pour all the wine in at once and it just spills out everywhere. But you drip it in and it all gets down there. It's, they're narrow-necked vessels. So you've got to just keep the saturation going all the time and helping them see God in everything around them. That is informal sort of instruction. And then the last sort of instruction is through modeling. So you've got formal, informal, and then in modeling. And you see this in verses eight and nine. I love how the passage starts. It starts by saying, 
Love God. Parents, you cannot pass along what you don't possess. So this is an internal thing. You have got to love Jesus. And then you get to verses eight and nine and he says this, you shall bind them as signs on your forehead and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. He starts by saying, you've got to possess this thing. It's got to be inside of you. Then at the end of the passage, he says, and what's inside of you has to come to the outside of you. It's got to be seen. This is the whole like, you know, on your hand, frontlets between your eyes, on your doorposts, at your gate. What's inside of you has got to be seen by your kids. It's got to be modeled. Modeling has always been the most effective way to teach anyone anything. Modeling. Parents, your kids are going to learn 10 times more by the eye than they are the ear. They're going to see what's happening. And what they see is what's going to deeply shape them. Um, listen to Christian Smith. He's a Christian sociologist. Here's the way he said it. And, and he's done extensive research on this. Here's what he concludes. The most important social influence in shaping young people's religious lives is the religious life modeled and taught to them by their parents. Modeled and taught. Not just taught, but modeled and taught. Parents, your kids, are what, what your kids see is what they're gonna one day be. Parents. What they see is what you can predict is what they're gonna be at some point down the road. That's how powerful modeling is. And it's not just your actions, it's your reactions. The thing you are going to most deeply shape your kid in is what they see makes your soul come to life. What they see just produces in you this deep and overwhelming joy. That's what they are seeing modeled by you is of utmost value. Just allow that to just simmer over you for a second. Is Jesus the thing that like brings your soul to life? Like, is that the thing they see you get most excited about? See, it's, it's that emphasis on what you get excited about that's gonna be going, getting right down into the heart of your kiddo. Let, let me finish by saying this. This is J.C. Ryle, an old Anglican uh, pastor and preacher, theologian of multiple generations ago. He said it this way. And I'll just leave you with this for all parents. Parents, precious, no doubt, are these little ones in your eyes. You love your kids. He knows that. Just acknowledging that. But if you love them, think often of their souls. No part of them should be so dear to you as that part which will never die. You know, there's a part of your kid that's going to live forever, either in heaven or hell. Saying, man, think about that part of them that will never die. The world with all of its glory shall pass away. All of their sporting achievements are going to pass away. All of these little worldly acts, that's all going to pass away. The hills shall melt, but the spirit which dwells in those little creatures, those little image bearers, whom you love so well shall outlive them all. In every step you take about them, in every plan you make for them, in every scheme that you come up for them, in every arrangement that concerns them, do not leave out this mighty question. How will this affect their souls? Will you pray with me? Parents, do you think that way about your kids? How will this affect their souls? 
I wanna give you just a moment to allow the spirit of God to press into you what would be helpful to wipe away what wouldn't be and You know, for every parent in here, where parenting really begins is by allowing yourself to be parented by God. As he corrects you, you immediately and joyfully obey him. I just wonder what you need correcting in today. As he instructs you, you listen, you receive that instruction, and you walk in wisdom in light of it. It's where it starts. And so I just can't help but think that there's many parents that are being parented right now by God. God is gently spanking us. He is disciplining us. Like he promises to do in Hebrews 12 for our good, to disciple us. And our response today should be to turn from our sin and to turn back to Jesus, to yield to him, to submit to him, to repent of our sin. Parents, what, what are your kids seeing as the most valuable thing in your life? Just allow the Lord to parent you in that, in that question. And there are some in here who have never stepped across the, the, the decisive line of faith in Jesus to actually be a son or daughter of God. So where parenting begins for you is by opening up your life and saying, God, I'm going to trust Jesus. I'm going to turn from my sin, throw my life upon you. I'm going to receive Jesus and be welcomed into your family today. That would be step one for you today. If that's you, man, we want to know about that. We want to take that journey with you. So I love that today we're going to get to finish by taking communion. So we've got two tables up here at the front, two in the back. And let me remind you what communion is, who communion is for. It is for those in relationship with Jesus. So if you are not in relationship with Jesus right now, man, take Jesus before you take communion. I'm gonna be right back here at the table and would love to talk to you if you need to take that decisive step toward him today. Our prayer table is right back here. But, but here's the next step of what communion is for. It's not just for those in relationship with Jesus. It's for those in right relationship with Jesus. So if there's any sin that needs to be repented of, anything that needs to be turned from, you need to do that business with God before you come up and take communion uh, this morning. And then uh, you need to think about your kiddos this morning. So if you've got kiddos in the room that aren't Christians, it'd be so great to, to just show them what it looks like to do this. It'd be a great conversation on the way home as you tell them no this morning. Uh, but you get to tell them what it is and what it's about on your way home today. And if they are Christians, if they have kind of stepped across that line of faith, man, it'd be great to have them join you this morning. So if there's any need we can pray for for you, if there's anything we can do for you, serve you by prayer, Kevin and I are gonna be right back here at the table and we'd love to do that. So Father, would you please come in and meet with us? God, would you do that? As we dip the bread in the juice this morning, God, would you remind us that all of our parenting failures have been washed by the blood of Jesus and covered by him? That is grace. And God, as we dip the bread and the juice this morning and eat it, may we be reminded of the cross of Christ, the grace of God that, that not only covers our sin, but empowers 
new obedience right now today. So, oh God, would you help us? Would you speak to us? Would you be at work in us right now in this moment? Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.